Welcome to the ISTC podcast. The ISTC, or the Institute of Scientific and Technical Communicators, is the largest UK body representing information development professionals. This recording is from its conference, Technical Communications UK, from the 2016 conference, and one of the keynote presentations. This one is from Ray Galon, and it's called Let's Say Yes to Our Presence Together in Chaos. Good morning and welcome to the final day of, uh, of conference. Um, forgive the voice, it was all that singing I was doing last night. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Ray Gallen, who is from the Transformation Society. And he's going to be giving our uh, morning's um, keynote speech. Thank you, thank you. Uh, lovely looking out here the morning after the party and seeing <laughs> there are actually bodies in seats. <laughs> a second year in university, we had a, a comparative psychology professor who got up in front of a, a class of 200 students and he says, what a fine looking group of young people. It's really too bad one third of you must fail which was his way of telling us that he was going to evaluate us on the bell curve. And, uh, I'm not going to evaluate you on any curve, uh, but if, if this presentation were about my career, it wouldn't have this title. It would be called Fortuitous Shootings in the Foot. And that's all I'm going to say about my career. <laughs> what I am going to talk about today, though, is a quote Actually, the title is a quote from this man who is one of the formative influences on my life, the American composer John Cage. And what I think is important is if you look at this photo of him, he is smiling. And John used to smile all the bloody time. He was a happy, peaceful, gentle man who said, let us say yes to our presence together in chaos. And that's what I'm hoping that we're going to end up learning how to do out of this, is to understand that chaos is our friend. Uh, or at least it can be, or we can use it as if it's our friend. So, you know, we're all faced with the blank page problem. We're all writers, right? We all look at blank pages and there's nothing there, but then suddenly this pile of acronyms and names and themes and so on comes hurtling down upon us and we become totally overwhelmed and we really have a problem about how to deal with it. So I'm here to tell you or to advise you or to cajole you into understanding, cheer up, there's no hope. <laughs> so you might as well relax and have a good time. Uh, we are in an age in which we have to accept uncertainty. I think most of us know that. We're not always comfortable with that. We also know, and this is a real problem for us in our industry, that information changes in the time it takes to verify it. And that's a problem because our job is to provide reliable, verifiable information. And sometimes people's life, health, or safety can depend on it, right? So, 
Again, I'm here to give you good news, and the good news is you actually don't have to know everything. You actually don't have to be the expert on everything. In fact, you just have to be able to help others learn what they need to know. And uh, that actually can be a great relief because if we are unburdened from the need of knowing everything, being the font of knowledge, the source of knowledge, then we can say, okay, I've got users, they need to know how to do something. I don't even necessarily know what it is they need to know at this moment, but I can put them in touch with that. And I can put them in touch with it really fast, because that's what they know, they want. They don't just want to know something, they want to know it now. Right? So, how we used to do this, some of you remember this, Alta Vista. Then we went from this kind of cluttered thing to this wonderfully uh, clean interface with the page ranking algorithm that gave us more relevant results. And where we are headed, and we'll see more, we'll talk more about this in a moment, is more to this. But I'm not going to talk about that just yet. What I am going to talk about is the environment in which this enters which is something that a great number of us have heard about and talked about. We may not actually know all that much about it. It's called Industry 4.0. How many people here have heard of Industry 4.0? Not even a large number. How many of you actually know what it is? Wow. Okay, well. Uh, there is an actual definition, which is the current trend of automation and data exchange in manufacturing technologies. And that includes cyber-physical systems, right? Systems that combine physical uh, equipment, machines, whatever, and cybernetic control. Obviously, the Internet of Things is part of that. Cloud computing. I would also add, personally, artificial intelligence which is driving a lot of this stuff. <laughs> Wrong door, David. <laughs> you see? There we have an example. <laughs> a cyber-physical system functioning. This idea of Industry 4.0, uh, the term was coined by the German government actually, and it's, it has caught on in a number of circles, even in the United States, and it's built around four design principles. Uh, interoperability, very, very important. Information transparency, and when they say information transparency, what they're actually talking about is connected to interoperability, that is open protocols and open standards. But I think, by extension, we can talk about transparency of information, technical information, because the next thing that's in there is technical assistance. So technical assistance is a crucial part of the definition of Industry 4.0. And decentralized decisions. And hidden behind that term, decentralized decisions, is a lot of the decisions are not going to be made by humans. They're going to be made by machines talking to each other without 
human intervention. So let's look at the technical assistance part of this for a moment, because that's the part that I think we are most directly concerned with. So if you apply the notion of informational processes that use interoperability, transparency, and cloud computing to the provision of, whoops, of real-time, of, of uh, technical assistance, we get a real-time information offer, which is both validated and contextualized. And when I say contextualized, just so that we're clear, I'm not talking about what we've always called context-sensitive help. I'm talking about contextualized in the sense that it knows all about us. It knows whether we're happy or sad, whether we're in uh, motion or sitting still, uh, whether the uh, sensing device, which is probably this thing, is on your body or sitting on a table, whether it's inside or outside, whether it's spring, summer, fall, or winter. It knows all of that stuff. It knows what we're doing. It knows where we are. It knows everything. And of course, it's transmitting it to Big Brother. But in our position then, if it knows all that stuff, and we don't even have to try and guess it, our job is not to provide answers. Our job is to guide users to those answers at just the right moment. That is, the moment at which he or she needs that answer. I need it now, so I, I'm going to get it now. And I'm going to get just what I need now, and nothing more, nothing less. And that's what we're calling information 4.0. And there are a lot of ways in which that information regime needs to differ from what we've always done, needs to differ from what we know. So let's think about what some of the components of this information regime might be. And this is a, obviously, this is my opinion, but it's my opinion based on a lot of work and a lot of study and a lot of examination. Uh, and I'm not alone in having this opinion. So, the information is molecular. It means we don't make documents anymore. It doesn't mean that documents won't exist. It just means we won't be making them. What we'll be making are the information molecules that people are going to use. Now, there's still, for example, uh, we all know there are regulated industries that require a paper document. Those regulations are probably not going to go away. We're also going to have people who want documents, but they're going to assemble them themselves out of the information molecules. And when I talk about molecules, I mean something smaller than, say, a data topic. Things that you might call in another situation snippets, right? So which means that we're going to have to be very careful about understanding what is the granularity of, our, of, of these molecules, because a snippet taken out of a given context and put in another might no longer be true or, uh, uh, or sufficient or verifiable. And uh, again, we're talking about situations where health, safety, and life can be at, at stake. So there's a whole job of discernment 
that we need to apply in order to produce these information molecules in a proper way and to understand where they can go, where they can't go, can they go next to this one or next to that one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they need to be dynamic, that is, they're going to be continuously updated because, as we just saw, information is changing constantly. So if information changes, say, from morning to afternoon, we're going to update this from morning to afternoon. And if we need to verify it, that means that the information molecule needs to be small enough that we can get it verified between morning and afternoon. And we all know how easy it is to get SMEs to verify something in five minutes, right? But if we give them a little molecule like this, they'll say, oh yeah, that's okay. Off it goes. Another thing about the information that we're going to uh, be dealing with over the next while is that the notion of delivery, the notion of delivery of information is going to change. That is, instead of us kind of pushing it out to people, you know, and, and saying you've got to You've got to eat it real fast, you know, or it'll go stale. It's going to be an offer, and people will choose from amongst those molecules what they need, what they want. It's ubiquitous. That means it's everywhere. It means we can get it everywhere. We can get at it everywhere. It's online, it's searchable, and findable. Those are absolutely key. There's a, an information architect who said, finding is the new doing. And I've sort of taken that on as a mantra because I think it's really important for us as we go forward. Uh, it's going to appear spontaneously, triggered by the kind of context that I was talking about. Uh, a scenario uh, that I can give you, it's a little bit more mundane than our usual technical communication scenarios, but you're walking down uh, uh, the, the aisle of a shopping mall and your mobile receives a beacon signal from Sam's Shoe Store, right? And Sam's Shoes is a, is a, is a uh, multinational chain, right? But this particular Sam's Shoes is having a sale today on running shoes. And your mobile in your pocket receives the beacon and receives that information and also knows, because you've got your fitness application and so on, you've been running a certain number of uh, uh, kilometers every day, you've been, uh, uh, you've been doing your exercise and staying fit, unlike me, and, you, uh, uh, and you're probably wearing out the shoes that you bought six months ago. So it sends you a message and says, your running shoes are about to wear out. The soles are getting thin, and this store is having a sale on it. Wouldn't you like to go there? Not only that, but it's going to be coordinating what you do in that shopping mall with what all the other people are doing in the shopping mall and producing big data, which then gets crunched and turned around and so on and fed back out to suggest other things based on, as it were, the herd mentality in that shopping mall. So a lot of that information is going to be happening, and it's going to be happening automatically, but it still needs to be produced somewhere. Somebody needs to create that information, and somebody needs to be sure that that information is good, useful, 
helpful, etc. And it's also going to respond to profiles. And when I say profiles, I'm talking about things like personas. But today, when we do personas for UX, we say, you know, we may have four or five personas that are typical users of our stuff. Instead of four or five, we're going to be creating hundreds because we're going to have that detailed information, and that information is going to be automatically collected. So we're going to have hundreds of personas, which are still going to be useful because we are dealing with hundreds of thousands of people. So what this means is that we're all dealing with information that is somehow uh, mixed up. It's bits and pieces. People are collecting information left and right. And if you make a graph of the uh, autonomous nature of their information collecting against the knowledge that they build up, which in the past was linear like this ribbon on the bottom, what you see is that we get little bits of puzzles of knowledge, bits of knowledge that are not necessarily put together or connected into any continuum, right? I go Google something because I need to do something right now, and I might get a piece of information that is highly advanced, but I haven't sort of studied all the background and so on that's underneath it. So what's going to happen? I'm going to have this isolated piece of advanced information and not necessarily know how it connects to other stuff. Our job is to fill in black holes of knowledge. And here's the big problem. We don't know what they are. I know what my black holes are, but I don't know what yours are. You don't know what your neighbors are. None of us knows what our users know or don't know about our stuff. None of us knows what they used to know and forgot. None of us knows what they might have picked up from some user forum, including maybe erroneous information, that's somebody's workaround for a problem, or some trick that we don't know anything about that could be really helpful if other people knew it. So we need to stay zen in all of this. We need to be calm. We need to relax. But if I keep talking to you like this after the night you've just spent, you're all going to fall asleep. <laughs> in order to fill these black holes, we need to, in fact, have an information offer. And that's where this image that I showed you earlier comes in. This is an application which you can download onto your mobile. It's called Bleepar, B-L-I-P-P-A-R. You can get it in the uh, App Store, you can get it in Google Play. And what you're seeing here is a screen that it shows you if you scan your hand with it, or anyone's hand. So it comes up here with an image of the hand, and all around it, what you see is an offer of information, an ontology of information related to the hand. I'm going to talk about this more, but there's something else that it will show you first, actually, because I've jumped here so that you can see this. 
The first thing it does is it gives you a scroll here. So here you'll see, for example, usually, typically, the first thing that comes up is the Wikipedia article on whatever it is that it is recognized. <coughs> but then as you go down, you'll see here it says hand washing, clean hands save lives, uh, videos from YouTube, from Wired, different photos. You can keep on going down, and you'll get more and more information. Now, this is not information that Blipar has created or that uh, they've hired technical communicators to write for them. This is stuff that's out there on the net. And all it's done is created an offer of information. Now, let's say all of that's fine, but it's not really what you're looking for. You flip that down. You come back to this, and you've got all of these things around it, right? There's one on handedness, one called fingerprint. There's one called thumb, uh, phalanx bone, wrist. And here, there's one called finger. So let's tap that button. And this is what comes up. So this is the page about fingers. And I think it's very funny that right underneath there's one called amputation. <laughs> that gives me a, a tickle. And that comes up all the time. But as you can see, also, there are certain of these things that are reproduced. So they're in, the fingers are in uh, uh, both ontologies and so on. But it's a different ontology. This is not the same one that we got here. Now, this is what uh, people have been calling the semantic web or web 3.0 for I don't know how long. Uh, and uh, it's not always easy to make this stuff because making these ontologies is very human labor intensive. But you can make them in certain specialized areas fairly easily. Now, what's interesting is that the people who make this app, and we've been in touch with them, they think that what's really hot about their app is the visual recognition, that you can show your hand, and it'll, it'll do that. You can show a bottle of water, and it'll give you stuff about bottles. It'll give you stuff about water. It'll give you stuff about mineral water companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think is really important and really exciting is that we're finally getting working ontologies. And we're getting them in a very simple and easy to use uh, presentation. Now imagine if instead of just being a sort of scattershot, whatever, whatever you scan visually, you could point, say, something like this at a software screen or at a piece of equipment and get an ontology presented right, of all these different things, some of which are going to fill your black holes of knowledge some of which are going to fill in the gaps of what you don't know, right? Isn't that a great way to make an information offer that the user can then pick and decide, I need this, I don't need that, very, very quickly? What a great idea. So that our job, in a large measure, becomes to be a storyteller, because when we get all these bits, these puzzle pieces, we don't, we don't want to just pile them up into uh, you know, some sort of mess. We want to actually organize them so that it actually tells a proper story. And because we are in the world that we're in, 
we are being asked to be fast, agile, and the word that I really like is nimble. Because agile is a methodology. And people who do agile may or not may not be actually agile. And, you know, I'm sorry, if you make heavy-duty uh, tractors, you can't do them agile, right? I mean, heavy equipment, all kinds of stuff that isn't software, it's just not amenable to an agile process. But we can be nimble, and by nimble, I mean both flexible and responsive, right? So that we're, we're providing what's needed on an as-needed basis. In short, we are solving problems. And in the context of information 4.0, what we need to provide is not just traditional tech -com procedures, you know, how-to, and so on. We, we still need to do that, but it's not only that. We need to, in fact, provide a different vision, a different view of reality or even reorganize reality, because if you just turn around and look at those objects that were just on the screen, somehow it puts together a different image, right? So from this kind of individualized separate, separate components, we produce a vision that represents a different way of seeing that provides a coherent project that improves people's lives. And isn't that what we're about as technical communicators? Isn't that one of the things that drives us in our business? One of the other things that I think is going to become more and more important, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, is the notion of interactive stakeholder communities. Now, a lot of you, I think, are involved in this to one or another extent. If you're working with something like Confluence or MindTouch, you're probably dealing with this. But it doesn't matter what tool you're using. What's, what matters is what you're doing and how you're doing it. So if you've got a product, then you've got a whole bunch of stakeholders here uh, that I call an integrated learning community. So you're talking about your SMEs, developers, marketing, the uh, UX team, your CRM, social nets, users groups, uh, and so on. And I've made a highlight here on user testing and research, because I think that's a real high-focus item, a high-touch item for us, is working with the users. And all of these people put feedback into the product. However, these are just silos unless we throw up some verbs that vectorize the interaction between those people. So we have here uh, impact, interact with, help, facilitate, influence, integrate, add value to, feed into, fertilize. If we aren't doing that between those silos, they'll just be silos. And we'll have what we've always had. But if we actually activate and vectorize those interactions, then we get this point of intersection here where all kinds of interesting stuff happens. And we talk about content strategy, but how often do we think that the product itself needs a content strategy? Because the product makes content, the product is content, the product generates content. More and more. 
And that's going to happen even more in the context of uh, information uh, 4.0 and industry 4.0. The common example that gets given all the time is smart refrigerators. Well, when your refrigerator is talking to you, it's giving you content. When it's telling you the yogurt's going stale, it's giving you content. When it tells you, I just ordered 20 cases of yogurt at the supermarket, and you say, wait a minute, I don't want that. And who takes responsibility for that? Is it, the, is it the fridge manufacturer because the fridge went haywire? Or is it you because you own the fridge? Who's actually supposed to pay if that stuff gets delivered? These are all questions that we're going to have to deal with. And then from this process, we also go out into things like learning objects, SCORM, and now there's a new learning interface. Some of you probably know about it, XAPI, or also known as the Tin Can Initiative, which does not require a learning management system. So you can work either way. You can work with an LMS or without. But all this training and learning that happens also is used to feed information back into the product itself and into the process. In order to do this, you've got to have a professional animator. Now, when I say animator, the English word usually that we usually use is moderator. But think about what does moderator mean? It means to moderate, to make more damped down. It's to damp down. And what we don't, we don't want that. What we want is to generate enthusiasm. So I like what most of the Latin languages, the Romance languages, use for that role, which is animate. We want to animate discussion. We want to generate enthusiasm. And so what I'm talking about here when I talk about interactive stakeholder communities, and I can do a whole presentation just on that, but what I'm talking about here is... Uh, Communities, not user forums, where you just kind of throw all your users to each other's clutches, but where you've got all the stakeholders, whether they be internal to your company or external in the form of being your customers, contributing to the development of the technical information and, for that matter, the design of your product, and feeding back into it. And that means somebody has got to look after those people. Somebody has got to actually respond. Because if you put something up, and you've probably all seen this, where you know, people ask questions on company of, uh, you know, in Gulf and Devour Corporation, and uh, nobody ever answers. Nobody from the company ever answers. That's, that's really great uh, PR for your company, right? That's really great image and really great customer experience, right? And we are hearing these terms, customer experience, customer journey, user experience, user journey, and so on. These things are mean something. They are important. And they're getting more and more important. So we have to be part of the process of providing that. We have to be part of the process of facilitating that customer journey and making it a happy one. And if we're not, then we're part of the problem. So, as technical communicators, our job is changing, and it's changing radically, and it's going to change very quickly. We've had a long period in which our job has evolved continuously, and we've really, 
We've gone from just being the person in the corner writing manuals to somebody who actually, we get our fingers in a whole lot of pies. We do a lot of things that aren't in our job descriptions. But now our jobs are going to include creating information molecules, compiling ontologies, curating information from the outside, that is from internet or wherever, stakeholder communities, and across internal silos and lots of other stuff. We're going to be animating inter interactive stakeholder communities. We're going to be continuously updating in an agile and nimble fashion. We need to be active on social networks, and we need to design for connectivity. That's another important thing. We are always making connections, so we have to design to be connected to each other at the same time that we train for autonomy. And when, we, when I say train for autonomy, we have to give our users autonomy. They have to be able to help themselves get what they need and get on with whatever their job is. Now, this chart, some of you may recognize, it came from Redgate Software, whom I was told have just dismissed all their technical writers. So this was their, this was their, um, this was an HR tool to show the career path for technical writers inside their company, which now would appear to be null. But um, I still like it because it shows the depth and breadth of what we do and where we can go with it. And taken outside of you know, the individual enterprise that created it and, and the hum, uh, human resources aspect and just seen as an idea chart, it's excellent because it's really what we're about. And it, uh, so you see that there's specialist domains, there's product domains, there's projects, there's leadership, all of these roles that we can go, in, go into. I remember when I was a contractor with uh, a major... Uh, multinational uh, manufacturer of many things that has a meatball for a logo, um, uh, that uh, we, were, we were all told, uh, we were all asked if we wanted to be hired inside. And we all said yes, we wanted to be salaried employees. And finally they decided not to do it because they said, there's nowhere for you to go inside. There's no career path for you. You're not engineers, you're not this, you're not that. Well, there is somewhere for us to go. They were wrong. So, there's also the human factor, and this comes from uh, uh, a research project that, that uh, we started uh, here at this conference with our friends from Adobe who are sitting over there. Hi, guys. <laughs> and uh, you can, if you follow this hashtag Adobe chat, you'll see some of the uh, traffic uh, on that subject. We just, for an arbitrary division of, into two groups, we asked, who, who knows how to play a musical instrument? Well, we found out that that actually ended up being an ontological difference. If you see some of the drawings that people did as we were brainstorming about ideas, this came from the musicians. The non-musicians were much more linear and textual, right? So again, we all hear about learning styles and so on. Here's clear evidence. This wasn't even our intent, but it's what happened. And it's just one of the, one of the things that I think is really interesting and exciting when you, when you start to do these sorts of projects. So 
to prepare for this new kind of career that we're all going to have, we need to study and learn learning theory, especially connectivism, epistemology, the science of knowledge. Uh, I've been using the word epistemology for years, and most of my colleagues laugh when I say it. But I think it's very important, and I think we're absolutely involved in it. We need to know about sociology, social psychology, strategic thinking. These are not things that they teach you in university uh, technical communication courses. But we need to know about it. Design thinking, semantics. Oh, and by the way, we also know, have to know how to write. We still have to know that, right? So my advice is stay zen, say yes, accept that it's going to be really messy and chaotic. And just have fun with it, because it is fun. It's really exciting. I've never had so much fun in my life doing this work as I'm doing right now. And I hope that's true for you, too. So that's my message to you. Thank you very much. I think we have some time for questions. Uh, and I will just mention, uh, there is a book that exists. Oops. Um, called The Language of Technical Communication. And a lot of the people in this room have contributed to it. And if you're interested in it, you can see me, because I think I, there are some copies around. Uh, any questions? Uh, yeah, they'll be, they'll be online. Is there going to be a, a centralized repository yeah, for the, the conference? Yeah, so they'll be there and also on uh, the Transformation Society has a slide share site and they'll be there too. Are there any other questions? Yeah. Sorry? Well, yeah. Um, if you're interested in Industry 4.0 and its informational components specifically, um, <laughs> there are a lot of conferences coming up. Uh, one of them is the TCOM conference in November, where there will be a full day devoted to it, a track uh, that I'm organizing with uh, actually one of my clients, Andy McDonald, uh, and under the aegis of the Information Energy Conference, which is a satellite conference of TCOM. So there will be that. Uh, there are there's also some of the material that I've presented today will be in an article in the TC World magazine in October. And you can read about it. And there, there are some footnotes and references in that article as well. Um, yes? Uh, yeah, security. The question is about security. How do we manage it? And that consumers might see some of it nerve-wracking. Uh, I think security is a huge issue, and I don't think it's resolved. Uh, I also think that uh, younger generations, and I've seen this with my own kids, are less concerned with privacy than, say, some of us are, and so are more comfortable with a lot of stuff being known. That said, there's also some research uh, 
that shows that the millennial generation is now getting more concerned with privacy than in the past. So I don't have a clear answer to your question except to say that, yeah, we've got to think about it and that it's very important. And the whole big brother aspect of this is very definitely scary. But I will also say that if we aren't there to be the ones to socialize it and humanize it, then it'll be the Microsofts and Googles and, and, and so on of the world who will make those decisions for us. Uh, I actually don't know a great deal about blockchain technologies, uh, so I'm, I, I think I'll refrain from answering that because I don't want to put my foot in it. <laughs> Um, it's too simple, but it's also correct. Thank you.